in in First um, Corinthians chapter nine, the last verse of chapter nine, verse twenty-seven. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let, sec com nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome, in, overcome you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. <clears throat> In this passage, Paul first talks about his body and disciplining his body. And why does he discipline his body? Because our body still has our sinful human nature in it. And as he says in Romans chapter 7, he says, when he doesn't do what's right, he said that it's not me, but my flesh that dwells in me. He begins to talk about a separation and understanding of, of two personalities, two natures. The nature that wants to serve God, that God has given us, and our old nature that wants to serve self and, the, and to be pleased. And that's that part that Jesus says that we must deny ourselves of. And, and Paul talks about dying daily too. And he says that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his affections and his lusts. And this is what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about uh, disciplining his body. In the King James Version it says, I beat my body into subjection and make it my slave. And here it says, uh, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. You know, when, you, when you're in authority, those who are under your authority are your subjects. And so he says, I bring it into subjection. Make it my subject. Make it my servant. Because if you don't make it your servant, 
it will make you its servant. You will serve the flesh if you don't make it your if you don't make the flesh your servant. And that might sound like double talk, but if you really think about exactly what it's saying, you understand the the difference between the two natures. And Paul goes through and he says, he says, just because I'm an apostle and just because I'm preaching to others, he says, does it mean that I can do it, you know, that I'm above the word of God? He says, after I preach to others, I don't, myself, don't, I don't want to be a castaway. So I don't listen to my flesh. I don't give in to my flesh. I crucify my flesh. I discipline my flesh. Or as we read in King James, I beat my body into subjection and make it my slave. To be spirit, one of the things about being spiritually minded is an awareness of the of the ways we're being pulled. <clears throat> Thomas Akempis, in his book, uh, "The Imitation of Christ," one of his headings, one of his chapters was the different motions of nature, nature and grace. The different ways of, of nature, our human nature, and the way of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's leading us this way. The flesh is leading us that way. And if we're spiritually minded, we, begin, we, we recognize there's an understanding and there's a vision of the two directions we're being pulled in. And to put the death to one direction and following the other direction. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be our guide. But what good is a guide if you don't follow it? And so we understand in this passage what Paul's talking about. And from there he goes on and talks about the Israelites. He talked about how they were baptized into the sea. They went through the Red Sea and that was Kind of like a baptism for him, just as we are baptized into Christ. By water, they pass through water too. It says, they ate spiritual food. They ate the manna. It's like we take part of the Lord's Supper. And he says, they drank the spiritual drink. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed, and that rock was Christ. Christ was with them. But with most of them, God was not pleased. And judgment came upon them. Why? Because of rebellion, because of unbelief. And it talks about things that they did. They were covetous. They were immoral. They were complainers. They didn't respect God the way they should have. They tempted God. They grumbled about their circumstances. They doubted God. They complained against Him and against those His servants. And He says in verse 11, Now all these things happened to them as an examples to us, and they were written for admonition. The word admonition, we don't use the word admonition too much anymore, or admonish, but what it means is to correct to warn and to instruct. Those are the definitions of the word admonish. It's written there to warn us not to be like that. It's written there to instruct us, to teach us.
And he says in verse 13, now, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. We will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, be able, but with the temptation will all will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, when we read this the other night, in the men's meeting, Dave made a point. It's worth worth repeating, and I, it's, it kind of stood out to me because I was mentioning about Christians who, and I remember having this mindset as a young Christian. You know, God, you said you'd be able to provide for me a way of escaping. You know, where was it? I fell on the temptation. I did what was wrong. And the point that Dave made was, at the very end of that verse, it says that you might be able to bear it. God did not pull the children of Israel out of the wilderness. He did not stop feeding them manna. He, he, it was a, a time of testing. Our faith will be tested. It says that God will provide a way of temptation to make a way of it, but, but with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or um, endure it. That's translation of that word. That we may be able to endure it. You know, when we're tried with different circumstances, when we're tempted by different things, like the children of Israel were, both circumstances and, and tempted to sin. Um, God provides a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. doesn't mean he's going to take all trials away. You know, and there's like this little door that he's going to make you go out, and then all the temptations are gone, and all the t- trials are gone. Everything's good. And now we're in this little utopi- utopian world in this life. No, it's not like that. It was not that way for the Son of God. It was not that way for the apostles. It's not that way for us. That's why Paul said, I have to discipline my body because God provides a way of escape in the temptations, in the trials. He doesn't take them all away until he's ready. In one of Peter's letters, it says, if necessary, he says that you're grieved by various trials. You're distressed by various trials. If need be. And God is the one who decides if there need be. And when we pray for God to deliver us out of temptation, to deliver us out of our trials, He doesn't necessarily take away all temptation. He teaches us how to stand in the face of temptation. He teaches us how to trust Him in the face of trial until He's ready to remove that. You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness, He was tempted by the devil. And the devil didn't go away right away. You know, He was tried you know, and, and tested and tempted. And it, it mentions three different ways He was tempted at that time after His time of fasting. And then it says, after that, after he went through and he rebuked the devil, eventually Satan gave up for a time. He says he left him for a time. But Jesus had to stand firm. And if the Son of God has to do it, we have to do it also. 
Jesus disciplined his body. Now here we read he, in that time that I mentioned, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I am not suggesting that or condemning that for people to do that. I'm just saying there's understanding of disciplining the flesh so that you're not the servant of it. And what does that mean? It means many things. Many things and different things for different people. We have been grown up in a generation where we're taught to spoil ourselves, to give ourselves whatever we want, and to, you know, to, you know, to, to indulge and to, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? To pacify our human nature. Whatever, you know, if I remember when I was younger, it said, there was a saying in, in the, a commercial, you know, that's, that was talking about that very thing. And it just goes on throughout the ages. Just, you know, if, if it feels good, do it. Follow this, you know, do what you, do what you feel, you know. Do your own thing was, a, was another one, you know. And it was all about doing what you felt like doing. It was about self-will. And doing what we thought, and you know, we read a couple weeks ago from the book of Judges, every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. Instead of God's will, we do our will. And the Christian can fall into that trap very easily. And, it's, and it causes problems. It can be very serious problems. So God provides a way to escape in the trial, in the temptations. Until the time that those temptations, those trials are taken away. And it could be long. I'm not going to candy coat it. It could be long. Whatever it is. But God provides the grace. He provides the power. He provides whatever we need. That's the escape. Escaping falling into temptation. Escape being discouraged in our trials. Escape being carnally minded and being anxious and fearful in our trials being distressed and overwhelmed in our trials we can escape from all those negative things in our temptations in our trials that's the way of escape it's a false notion to believe that God is going to provide this door that we're going to walk through, and he's always going to take away our temptation and trial as soon as we walk through that door. There's a secret door that God provides that if we walk through it, no more trials, no more temptations. It's going to be this ideal life that never has any problems, never has any temptations. And whenever there is a temptation, God immediately takes us out of it. There's no more temptation. There's, and if there's a trial, God erases it right away. I'm not saying that sometimes he doesn't do that. But we have to be wise about it because many times he doesn't do that. And so that's why it says that you may endure it. That you may be able to bear it. That's why it says that in there. Because you don't have to bear it if it's not there anymore. You don't have to endure it if it's not there anymore. And I think it's that false notion that people that I have known that have falsely accused God of not providing a way of escape for them, thinking that it was like that trial, that temptation has to vanish when I look to God. 
a false notion. It's a false teaching. Because God doesn't work that way many times. It's not the way of God. Jesus went through many trials and temptations. It says he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> and he went through many trials, many temptations, yet without sin. So he had endure a lot, and he had bear a lot. And God provided a way of escape through it that he could endure and bear with everything that he had faced. So we shouldn't be deceived into thinking otherwise. That God is not holding up his end of the bargain. Because that's that's a false idea. It's not it's not true. If we believe that we don't understand God's way. You remember the story of Jacob after he left his father's house, after deceiving his father, that he went and he lived and served his father-in-law for 21 years. And a lot of it was under his father-in-law's deceiving him. For 21 years, he had to endure that until God finally took him away from that. 21 years. Now, why did God do that? Now, we can speculate all kinds of things. Maybe because of the way he deceived his own father. That God had to teach him something. That's one of the things that are speculated. But we don't really know all that. But we just see in all that God's faithfulness to preserve and to help and to do whatever to help Jacob through all of his trials and through all the wrong that his father-in-law did to him. And in the end, God blessed Jacob, even though his father-in-law tried to rip him off. It didn't work. His father-in-law's scheme didn't work in the big picture. So God was with Jacob. Some weeks ago we talked about the story of Joseph as another example. We won't talk about that one again. But there's one I want to look at that uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is about the story of David becoming king. And we're going to just take a few excerpts from 1 Samuel, beginning with 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'll give you a verse in a minute, Dave. First Samuel 16, and beginning with where is it here? verse 1, and then verses 5 to 13. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Verses 5-13. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was, when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was, a ru he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So, so Samuel went to Ramah then. And what it doesn't talk about here, but we know, is that King Saul was still king. And by royal, by royal succession, the next king should have been Jonathan. But God said, no, he rejected Saul from being king. And so, while Saul is still on the throne, God makes another king, David. And the story doesn't continue by saying that after the oil was poured on David, and that he, he had been made king, that he went to Jerusalem and sat on the throne. Oh, no. What happened... From there was that Saul began to perceive that God was with him. And eventually he perceived that David was going to be king. God was, the God was with David. So in his twisted mind, similar to King Herod, he decided to try to kill David. In the same way King Herod tried to kill Jesus. And you read all the different ways. And so David was a man on the run. He was a fugitive from his own, in his own country. The army of his country, his, his king, they were, they were pursuing him, trying to kill him, trying to murder him, kill him wrongfully. And you see him going all over, you know, trying to hide all these different places. Paul, Saul tried to kill him, but with his spear, pin him to the wall with his spear. And all this other stuff. That was going on. And so, we read another place in 1 Samuel chapter 23. The story continues. We, like I said, we're just reading excerpt, excerpts. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 23. And verses, verse 25. To, uh, chapter 24 and verse 12. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went 
on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called that rock, it's called that place, the rock of escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at Angedi. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Angedi. Then Saul took three thousand chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterwards, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe is in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Okay. So, here we see that Saul is on the, on the chase of David, and he's been pursuing him. And you see that they even named the place the rock of escape. Think about again what it says in Corinthians about God providing the way of escape. And they call it, this is the mountain of escape. And why did God allow it to, you know, the, they were completely circled around by Saul's men. And they were about to capture him. And it was at the last minute, before he was captured, that Saul gets word. The Philistines have attacked the land. And Saul and all of his men left. 
And it's a great thing. It's a great deliverance. And they call it the, the rock of escape, that place where the Lord delivered them. But you know what? As often happens, trials have a way of bouncing back. We experience a deliverance, and then there's a need for more help. A lot of times in the same thing like this. Here it is again, the same thing. Here it is again. Here's this trial again. I thought I was done with this. And here comes Saul again. God delivered him. Now he's, now he's coming back again. And David and his men are hiding in the cave. And you know, it's interesting that it's in a cave because in a cave, people on the outside can't see. Something in secret. He could have killed him right there, and only him and his men would have known. Nobody else would have ever seen it. He could have left his body there, been the end of it. You know, let his men find him. It could have been the end of it. But David didn't do that, because he didn't work out his own deliverance. His men were like, oh, come on, kill him. You know, it's, here's your chance now. God delivered him into your hand. And this is where people are misguided. Because the Word of God clearly says that we're not to lift, you know, in the Old Testament, that they weren't to lift up their hand. They weren't to go against those who were anointed of God. And King Saul was anointed by, king, by uh, the prophet Samuel. And he was king. And he was in authority. And so David respected him. And respected God's way. Instead of using his own reason, saying, Ah, oh, God gave him into your hand. Well, wait a minute. That's not what God's Word says. David was going to what God's Word said. Not just looking at the situation, assuming, oh, this must be what God's doing. And presuming that. But following the Word of God. And letting the Word of God be His guide at this time of trial. And this time of decision. And not listening to the popular opinion. You know, David wasn't a fugitive by himself. He wasn't an outlaw by himself. All the men who are with him were outlaws too. And if Saul killed him, they were going to get killed too. You know, they were, they, was, they, they were in it together. So it wasn't the popular thing. All those men were like, go on, kill him, kill him. David's on that. No, you can't do that. The word of God says no. The law of Moses says no. You wouldn't do it. And so David, Saul left David and went home. It was all better now, right? David's going to be left alone. No, not really. As we go to first, uh, first Samuel chapter twenty-six, we go from verses one to eleven. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gib Gibeah, saying, "Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah, opposite Jeshimon?" Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having three thousand chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies, and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. 
Now Saul lay within the camp with the people and camped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the ground, to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said furthermore, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So here again, a similar situation to the last slide, where David was given an opportunity to kill Saul, and Saul is coming after him again. Here was again. That God did not take away this trial of David. It went on for several years, by the way. And it wasn't just David on the run by himself, as I said. And it wasn't just David and his men. It was David and his men and their wives and their children all running at you know, the whole the whole tribe of David and his men and their wives and their children on the run. And here's a second time that's written down that David had clear opportunity to kill his enemy. King Saul had become his enemy. The man who was pursuing him and all of his men and and all that he's doing to their family, and he didn't do it again. Because of his respect for the word of God. He was not going to work out his own deliverance. But this man came out to kill him and he, again. And he, the fact of the matter is that for the years of Saul pursuing David, he never got to do what he intended. Saul never got to do what he intended to do to kill David. Because he wanted to kill David because he knew that his son Jonathan wouldn't sit on the throne. If David was alive. And so he tried to kill him. And it didn't go away for years. Until finally. If you go to the end of this book. And you see what happens. You go into the next book. And you find out that. Saul was killed in battle. With his sons. And so. David became. King for real. In, in, in reality, he became king. He sat on the throne for Judah and then eventually all of Israel. But you see that it was a long time coming. And God did not take away the trials right away. And the temptation 
to get rid of his enemy was right there. He didn't give in to it. He didn't give in to his human nature. And that's the message from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That we make our bodies do the will of God. And that God will provide us grace and power and all the help we need in our trials and in our temptations. That we may be able to endure them. That we may be able to bear them. And as you see, with men of God and women of God in the Old Testament, as well as the New, including Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, that God didn't take away those things right away. That there was a time of trial. Sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. And they didn't fall into those temptations. They didn't, weren't overwhelmed in those trials. They had a place of escape in the trial. Before they escaped out of the trial. Before they escaped out of the temptation. Escape in the temptation. Escape in the trials. Not out of them. thinking of a verse when you um, were talking uh, and you know in the very beginning where Christ uh, you know was te you know teaching the apostles disciples he said in John 16:33 these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And he wants us to get that through our head, obviously, that, you know, the idea of being trialless is not what serving him is about. It's about learning the freedom and the joy and the power and the peace that there is in surrendering to him in the trial and then he will lift us up and it took a long time i know in my life for me to to reckon with that you know and i think that so many people um you know we all struggle with it but so many people unfortunately choose a path of becoming angry at god when he does not remove the discomfort that is going on in their lives. Sometimes, you know, there's really long trials like this one that David faced went on for years and years. You know, there's there's many trials that we have with our, you know, some of us have had trials in our marriages and, you know, spouses that have departed from the faith and, and have been, you know, sinning and hurting us and our families and you know, people have had horrible um, sicknesses and illnesses that go on for years and years, and they're debilitated by it. And there's people who, in Christ, who choose to be angry at God and believe that He didn't come through for them. But all the while, you know, yielding in the, in the circumstance, submitting to God, resisting Satan, you know, the temptation will go away and you will find a means of escape in it.
to be able to not fall to it. And that's what God is talking about in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10. He's wanting us to see that we can that we can triumph in it and that it's a matter of yielding our, our spirit, yielding to God and saying, you've chosen to allow this. You say that you work all things to the good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I will not doubt you and I'll yield in this. And when, when a person does that, they find this incredible peace. And not only peace, but joy. And you can look at others, even the ones who are hurting you, and you can see their need rather than be angry about what they're doing to you. You can see that they've gone astray, that they need Christ, that they need a representation of the power of Christ, and that God perhaps is choosing you in that moment to be that representation. And so for us, you know, there's, there's really, you know, no choice if we want to have peace and joy, but to yield to God in, in the trials and to not become angry. And, um, and like it says, He will lift us up. He will place our feet upon a solid rock. He will pull us up out of the miry clay and put a new song of praise on our tongue. And people will see it and they will fear God. I was heard a preacher this week on the radio. He was being asked some questions, common questions that he was asked. And one of the questions he said he was commonly asked was, you know, why did God bring all this sickness? Or why did God do all, why is the world so corrupt and everything? And his answer was, well, God didn't do this. It was, it was, you know, when God made the world, he made the creation. You read, God saw that it was very good. It was perfect when he made it. And he put... Adam and Eve in charge over it. He gave them, you know, rule over it. So I give you dominion. You read in the book of Genesis, I give you dominion over all the earth. And it was a man's sin that you begin to see things going backwards and corruption entering in. It, it set the course for all of nature to be. Um, Fouled up. And then everything happens after that. It started with man. And it continues to be man that's bringing this catastrophes and disasters upon himself. It's not from following God that disaster, that we, people bring disaster on themselves. It's from rejecting God. 